back and despite rumours that we were closing down, uh, we've got a new podcast on the way. Jamie, what, I mean, we've, we, we haven't done a pod in over six months. What have we been doing? Um, yeah, good to see you, mate. It's, it's been a while. <laughs> I mean, we do live together, so I'm not sure why you're saying that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been, yeah, well, we're back for a new season. Uh, hopefully we've got some, some good guests lined up. Uh, one being Charlie Pysmith, who we're about to talk about, but Hugo, we should probably do that thing that they do on podcasts when they haven't been on for a while. Um, just tell everyone what we've been up to. What have you, what have you been up to, mate? Well, yeah, it's been a, been a hectic hectic summer. I'm just saying, maybe talk about the blood sports that we've been getting involved in. <laughs> we did a bit of, um, this summer, we were very, very lucky to go on. Our, our, I mean, it's that time of the year where our friends, for the first time, are starting to get married. And we went off to um, Pamplona to do the bull run, which was pretty hectic for a stag do, I have to say. Um and yeah, I mean, it, I, for anyone who doesn't know what happens, you have you have bulls at the end of the end of the street, and then there's a, a 800 meter run dash, thousands of people in this one street, and you run, and the bulls run after you, and there's this this one turning called Dead, Dead Man's Corner, um, which luckily none of us died, uh, and then you get stormed right to the end into the into the arena. Yeah, which um, is which is where well for me. I thought I thought the the bad bit was going to be the actual bull run, but your sort of natural instincts seem to get you out of the way pretty quickly. But when you get into the main arena, well, there must have been twenty thousand people in there, and it's about eight in the morning, and then they shut the gates, and then and then they release young bulls on you, which is where Hugo. I think well, I mean the the, the first day I, I didn't get like the Spanish police kicked me out for being an English lout with my top off which you were so I nearly started crying on the first day but then I did it the second day and um, and yeah I mean I'm never I have to say I think in terms of thrills of my life I, I, I think that's up there although when I go back to England my brother who, who's a farmer said he's, he he has bigger bigger calves in his pen than the ones that were running at me so anyway but that was what we were up to we've done a bit of Done a bit of lobbying, Keir Starmer as well. Oh yeah, but why don't you tell everyone about that? Because um, you were at a what was it? A prop? What was it? A I mean, that's a ha- was, my my day job is in in housing. So um, yeah, I was in an event for that, surrounded by a lot of uh, <laughs> London left uh, activists surrounding me, and I um, collared Keir Sakir and uh, asked him a question on fox hunting, which went down like a lead balloon in the in the London crowd. So anyway, but at least we're doing doing our service to the, the hunting community, I think. It makes me laugh that driving home that night when he was speaking to his special advisor, he definitely would have been like, who was that guy <laughs> that asked me about hunting? Um, but yeah, that's that's about it. I mean, what else? I mean, what that's you, about you it. Tell I everyone mean, about tell everyone about Gotwood or something. Well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, we, yeah. I'm not sure that's necessary, but anyway, we um, we've got quite a few podcasts lined up. Some very yeah. exciting names, which we can't wait to um, let you know about. So stay tuned. Um, Jamie is the man behind the social media. So <laughs> if you ever want to go for a drink with him, just message him. But anyway, we're, we're, we'll, we're now going to interview Charlie Pie-Smith. So we'll see you on the other side. Hello and welcome back to On Hunting. I'm delighted to say that today we're joined by Charlie Pie-Smith, who has just written a book called Rural Wrongs. Charlie, I was doing a little bit of digging on you today, and I think you're probably the first person on this planet to write on uh, a book on uh, Christianity and Indian culture, and also fox hunting. 
How on earth have you ended up here? Well, I mean, I've, I make a living as a writer, so I write about all sorts of things. Um, I started off in my 20s, I think, writing what were pretentiously called literary travelogues for Penguin. So I wrote a book about a journey up the Nile. I wrote another one about uh, wandering around Nepal, looking at the whole aid business and how foreigners interacted. And I've been doing a lot of work in India for Channel 4 about environmental issues, which is really what, I, what I'm qualified to speak about. That's where my training was. And I just noticed one day these, even in remote parts of India, in the Hindu cow belt, you would see a little tin shack with a cross on it. So I thought, ah, interesting story here. So I then went back and I spent, I suppose, the best part of the year traveling around India, talking to this extraordinary community of Indian Christians. So, but funnily enough, now you mention India, there is fox hunting in India. I was going to say. Except, yeah. except it's jackals, not foxes. So one of the areas I went to was called Utakamond. used to be known as Snooty Uti in colonial times. And they still have a hunt there with chaps wearing red coats and all the right regalia, but um, <laughs> hunting jackals rather than foxes. So there is, there is a, a little bit of a connection between the two. <laughs> Exactly. Well, and there is a there is a pack as well at the moment out out in Pakistan um, that, that I think has just started up in in the last few years. But sort of going towards uh, your book, you mentioned that as you say you, you're a bit of an outsider in in the hunting world. Um, the the book you've written, uh, Rural Wrongs, you've written alongside as well with Jim Barrington, who yeah. who we spoke to in our second episode. Do you think sort of being slight outsiders that's very much helped with the framing of the book and how you've gone about it? I think it has in some ways. I mean, I first wrote about hunting. I first made radio programs about hunting for the World Service in the early 1990s, just because it was something I thought this makes an interesting half-hour program. And the more I got into it, the more fascinating I found it. And of course, this coincided with the Tory government in a state of sort of semi-collapse. It's very reminiscent of what's happening now. (laughs) And it was clear that Blair was going to get in. And so I just thought, ah, there's a little opening in the market from a journalistic point of view, to do some stuff on hunting. So it took off from there. And uh, I have just found it an absolutely fascinating subject. I am an outsider, but I actually have quite strong views about it, having seen so much of it in terms of its cultural importance. Although I've mostly been writing about the animal welfare aspects. Just uh, on that, I mean, in your journalistic life, has has your outspoken views on fox hunting affected your career in any way? Have you been shunned or no? No, I, I don't think I do have outspoken views. I mean, what I've tried to do is just look at it dispassionately. Yeah. I mean, I don't hunt. I mean, I've tried to look at the Hunting Act, both in the first book I wrote, which was called Rural Rights, mm. um, Hunting and the Politics of Prejudice, and then this one, Rural Wrongs, Hunting and the Unintended Consequences of Bad Law. What I've tried to do is be completely dispassionate and work out whether the Act works, and if it doesn't, why it doesn't work. And I've been particularly interested because I, my main way of making a living now is as a science writer writing about climate issues and yeah. livestock in Africa. I've been very interested at in seeing how science has been abused, particularly by the antis, in a way that they think it will make hunting seem cruel and therefore it should be banned. So I've, I've written quite a lot about the abuse of science. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I don't, I, no, I, I haven't found I've lost work elsewhere because I write about this particular subject. Although, of course, it's, it, I don't think we could have found any conventional publisher, yeah, mainstream yeah. publisher, to go near the topic, which is why the Surtees Society, mm. many thanks to them, have published Rural Wrongs. Brilliant. I, I mean, I'm gonna, we'll try and get into it now, I think. And I think a good way of doing that is probably quoting a section in your book, which probably, to me anyway, defines its purpose. And you say, instead of improving animal welfare... 
The Hunting Act in 2004 almost certainly did the opposite. Before sort of going into specifics, which you obviously paint in your book, do you want to sum up exactly what you mean by that? Well, ostensibly, the Hunting Act, the 2004 Hunting Act, was supposed to be about animal welfare, so you should judge it on those terms. But actually, I think the vast majority of MPs who voted for it, they weren't really interested in animal welfare. Mm. They, They disliked a group of people who they saw as toffs and redcoats. I mean, they had no idea who these people were. I think one Labour MP who did go out with a hunt was Austin Mitchell. And he rather changed sides because he saw, actually, this is an extraordinary world with people from every different background and class. Um, But I think most of the people who voted against it were just prejudiced against a certain group of people. I don't think it was about animal welfare, which possibly explains why it's so badly drafted. Um, I mean, it's an absurd act in many ways. It's very difficult to enforce and it's full of inconsistencies. Mm. So, for example, you could go out with a pack of hounds hunting mice if you wanted. There's nothing to stop you doing <laughs> But you can't do it after a fox. Um, you could do it after a rat. I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a ru- ludicrous act. But I, why I wrote the book was I thought, okay, you, the, the claim is that this is about animal welfare. Let's judge it in those terms. And it's failed on those terms. Yeah, so, so I think the best way to go is maybe dive into the act and and your your book is laid out sort of um you talk about stag hunting and then you talk about uh hare coursing and and beagling and then you talk about fox hunting um so to start with stag hunting i'm right thinking you spent obviously a bit of time uh down on exmoor um and what i'd like to know about is some of the unintended consequences of the hunting act on exmoor because obviously they can still use research um to hunt a stag with with two hounds um but yeah, I'd love to know what you discovered when you were down on Exmoor. I mean, stag hunting I found very interesting because many, many years ago, Jim Barrington, my colleague in, on this enterprise, uh, worked for a small organisation which he'd set up. And I wrote two booklets for them, one about fox hunting and another about hare hunting. When he asked me to write one about stag hunting, this would have been in the sort of mid-1990s, I actually said no, because I just thought I was so prejudiced against it because of what I'd seen and heard. Um and this was a real eye-opener going down to the West Country this time because I realised I had a huge number of misconceptions about what stag hunting entails. In terms of unintended consequences, there's three very obvious things. When you could hunt with a full pack of hounds before the 2004 Act, the hounds would disperse the herds of deer. Um, now, with just two dogs, they don't. So what that means is you're getting huge herds, 130, 140, gathering on one particular side, which is something the farmers simply don't want. It's competing with their livestock. They want them to be moved around. The fact that they're gathering these huge herds and not be moved around also means you've got stags covering their daughters leading to inbreeding. So that's one of the problems. Another is possibly more important in many ways related to disease. The latest peer-reviewed research that has been done down there has shown that in areas where the hunts are not operating, for example, on the Holnicott State owned by the National Trust, there are much higher instances of bovine TB, which is causing huge problems for farmers in Britain. Um, you'll have heard the story about Baronstown, the sanctuary, deer sanctuary set up by the League Against Cruel Sports. A ten-year, over a 10-year period, they found that something like 80% of all the deer in the West Country, which were found with bovine TB, were within two kilometres of the sanctuary. In other words, by allowing deer to come into one area and stay there, the chance of infectious diseases taking off is much greater. So that's another problem. And the third problem is to do with casualty deer. In the old days, the hunt, one of the great functions of the hunt was 
People would ring up, a tourist on a footpath, say, or a farmer who'd seen a deer that had been shot or injured, hit by a car. They'd ring the hunt. The huntsman would come out with a dozen or more hounds, find the deer and dispatch it, shoot it. Now, with just two dogs, it's incredibly difficult for them to find deer if they're skulking away in the undergrowth. And uh, so the hunts are uh, perhaps getting a quarter to a third of the casualty deer they used to kill each year, which basically means that the the act is leading to a situation where more deer are suffering Mm. and dying a slow death because they can't use a full pack of hounds. So those are the unintended consequences. Mm. And I I mean, we're... We'll go into a few of the other species, but I think we obviously want uh, the listeners to go out and buy your book. Um, but did you, when you look, when you did this analysis, did you find that any of the quarry species have actually ended up better off than they were before in two thousand and four, or is it just no, no? I think I think in in the case of I know you've done a program with Sir Mark Prescott. He will have told you the story that in the the, the last year of legal coursing. I think 168 hares died. Mm. Mm. In two days or three days after the act came into force, 3,000 hares were shot on two coursing estates in East Anglia. And they were shot for a very simple reason, not for hare meat, not for jugged hare, but to keep gangs of illegal poachers off the land. And we went and saw lots of farmers in East Anglia and who were actually keen on the hare. And they were spending a lot of money on trying to protect their land from the illegal poachers. But they were saying many of their neighbours are just shooting every hare they see because they simply don't want the trouble that they'll get if they don't, if they have poachers on their own. Mm. As far as the fox is concerned, the picture is much more complicated, because, yes, you had the Act coming into force, and I think this has led to a, a loss of respect for the quarry species in some way. So, for example, some of the estates I used to work on in Yorkshire, I know that the landowner would say to the gamekeepers, make sure you leave a few foxes for the hunt, because they like to see the hunt. The hunt was part of country life. I think there's less of that going on, so gamekeepers have possibly become more ruthless. Mm. I think the shooting industry, the industrialization of game shooting has been astonishing. Um, to give you just one example, a huntsman um, in the south of England who used to be in Devon in Tiverton said that when he left there in 2001, there were three shoots. There's now 40 shoots. They're not shooting one or two days a week. They're shooting six days a week. Um, so this has transformed the fox into a sort of vermin to be ruthlessly, ruthlessly persecuted. So I think the fox is worse off. But it's not mm. just because of the hunting acts, it's because of other factors also. The introduction of affordable, high-tech night vision equipment means that shooting foxes has become incredibly easy. Mm. So, no, nothing has benefited from the hunting act whatsoever. In, in terms of, I mean, talking about the fox's decline... Do you have any sort of hard evidence that you can prove that the fox has declined over over the last, what, it'd be 20 years since the hunting act came in? Because obviously a fox is a nocturnal animal, so it is difficult, perhaps, to judge whether it has. So have you have you done anything in your research to find out why? I, 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 well, I've done two things. I've talked to an awful lot of people. And I think, you know, the, the farmers are out there on their land, you know, from dawn to dusk. I think they're a good witness to what's there. And I know the fox is nocturnal, but they, they have a good feel about whether there are fewer foxes or more foxes on their land. So it's been, in that sense, it's been anecdotal. Um, I mean, one of the surveys that the hunters are very fond of quoting is the BTO. The British Trust for Ornithology has something called the Breeding Bird Survey, which mm-hmm. is a survey done every year. And the ornithologists who do it, there's huge numbers involved, have the option of actually recording what mammals they see. There's nine particular mammals. Um, 
And they came out with this figure that over a period of, I think it was eight years, the fox population had plummeted by 42%. But I think this, I've been to talk to scientists about that. There's some serious methodological problems. For a start, these are ornithologists, so they probably wouldn't know what a fox scout, <laughs> fox species, looked like anyway. The fox is a nocturnal animal, and they'd probably become more nocturnal as the, as the rate of shooting foxes is driven. So I think it's unreliable. So I think that what, what the conclusion we came to in the end was that in some areas, fox population is undoubtedly plummeted. And mm. in others, it's actually doing very well, thank you. Mm. So, um, so it's a very mixed picture, even within the same hunting country. I mean, one of the hunts in Wales I talked to, they said, well, in some areas we go, there's lots of foxes, and other areas, there's none at all. But I think where you've got intensive game shooting, there are probably fewer foxes, almost certainly fewer foxes than there were in the past. In, in terms of sh- uh, shooting foxes, is, is that something that you think needs to be addressed? Um, it... They've always been shot. Um, I mean, before the Act, I don't know what the figures were. They were I think hunts accounted for, what, 20,000 foxes a year? And gamekeepers probably accounted for 150,000 foxes a year. I mean, the, the fox has to be controlled. You know, it's a meso-predator. We've lost the apex predators. Um, it's rather like the badger, you know. Mm. Without the top predators, somebody has to do something. Not that they are doing with the badger. Um so they always have been shot. Whether whether they, the level of wounding is more or less is a different issue. I, I suspect from the people we've talked to but that when it was going out lamping at night, which is going out with a lamp, basically shining a lamp, you see the fox's eyes and you, you fire off with a, with a shotgun or a rifle. Um, I think there was probably quite a high rate of wounding then. I think with the latest, talking to people who shoot foxes, um, the latest equipment is absolutely fantastic. I mean, one of the farmers we went to see, who's even written a book about it, was saying, he said, lamping was like the Stone Age compared to what we've got now. He was saying with his infrared night vision equipment and all this stuff, you could see a fox's eyes three quarters of a mile away. You have a, a squeaker, so you, you, you have something that makes the sound of a, a wounded hare or a wounded rabbit, and you call the fox in. And when it's close enough, you shoot it. Mm. Um, and I don't even think you have to be a terribly competent shot with this sort of equipment they have. The problem is there's this new field sport now called foxing, mm. which is not, which is people shooting foxes for fun, for the pleasure of it. And if you go on YouTube, you'll find any, and just type in foxing, you'll find all these videos of chaps going out shooting 20 or 30 foxes in a night, sort of jaunty blokes in a pub music, um, obviously enjoying it, just doing it for pleasure. They're not doing it because they're trying to protect ground-nesting birds, for example, or, mm. or lambs on a farm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, we're, we're going we're gonna to come to solutions later on, but on this sort of discussion, you know, if I was, you know, playing devil's advocate here, and if, if I say, say I was from the League of Cool Sports, I wouldn't say the solution was to go back to a situation where it was legal to hunt foxes, I would make it illegal to shoot foxes. Is that not a solution that could be... If you made it illegal to shoot foxes, imagine what the fox population should be. Would mm. be. It would be phenomenal. I mean, if you think about it at the present, we don't know. It's very difficult gauging what the population is. But the sort of rough statistic that's been around for a long time is, say there's 250,000 foxes before the breeding season the end of the breeding season will be something like 650,000 foxes which means you have to get rid of to, to maintain that population at stable level you have, you're having to get rid of 400,000 a year mm. but if you're not shooting them um, 
what are you going to do? I mean, particularly if you're if you're interested in conservation, there's different reasons for shooting foxes. I think if you're if if you're a nature reserve and you want to have ground nesting birds like curlew and lapwing, or a grouse mall where you want to have grouse and a wonderful byproduct is you control the foxes and crows and you also have snipe and lapwing and hen harriers and other birds. Um, you have to shoot. You have to shoot them. So if the league did say that, they would be bonkers. Is all I <laughs> what? Well, I, I, yeah, I obviously agree with that. But I, I'm actually also going to be with Hugo here and slightly have my league against cross sports hat on here. And I know, for example, if they listen to this podcast, I, I, I doubt they probably I should do. think they're dying to. We've <laughs> got quite a few low scores on our ratings. Oh, so yeah. There, I think there was a period where they started targeting it, um, <laughs> giving us one star. So we actually started giving their podcast one star as a, <laughs> as a bit of a um, well payback. But... They they will say, and if you, if you look at their Facebook pages, they will say that hunting continues as before and and whatnot, and the trail hunting is a smokescreen for for illegal fox hunting. Even if that was the case, foxes are still declining from a period where hunting was legal. So in some areas, in in some areas, so so there must be more that you found in your research suggesting why they're plummeting, and you couldn't just attribute it to illegal hunting. No, exactly. You couldn't. No, it, it's because there's more shooting. Mm. No, it's nothing to do with hunting. I have, I incidentally, I have absolutely no idea how many hunts are using trail hunting as a smokescreen, um, and I don't suppose anybody apart from people who do it does. But I would imagine the vast majority of hunts are actually acting within the law and are trail hunting as they're supposed to be. Yeah. But hunting was never. I mean, I think where the hunts were really important in terms of controlling foxes was that was in the uplands. So. One story I'll tell you, which I thought was very instructive. So in the old days, if a farmer had a problem, if he had a problem with a fox on his land that was taking lambs, he would get in touch with the hunt. And the huntsman would come with whatever, six couple of hounds, and he would track down the guilty party and and dig it out and shoot it. Or the hounds might get it. Now what's happened because of the hunting act, because you can only use a maximum of two dogs, which are fantastically inefficient. Most hill farmers are calling out marksmen or shooters who they may have to pay. So one story I heard from a huntsman in the West Country was a farmer who was very antipathetic towards the hunt. He didn't like the hunt. So he had a problem. He knew he had a problem because all his sheep had been scanned. And each ewe was expecting two lambs. But every morning he arrived in the field, he would find a ewe with just a singleton, with one lamb. That meant the other lamb was being taken straight away as soon as it was born. He assumed it was a fox. Badgers could do that as well. So he called in a marksman. And over a period of about three or four days, the marksman shot 17 foxes. Huge number. Still didn't work. Every morning, the same story. So he had desperation. He got hold of the huntsman who came with some hounds. Within a very short period of time, they'd found a mangy vixen with a, with a, with a dog fox and five cubs. Killed them. End of the problem. So in a sense, that was hugely... And that's, that's a familiar story, actually. It meant that hunt, using hounds to track down a guilty party was hugely efficient because in that case it meant 17 foxes which weren't causing a problem had been unnecessarily killed so I think hunting in the uplands has always been made it more efficient I think in the lowlands sort of areas you boys hunt it's, it's probably it, 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 it's, it helps to manage the population that's all you're not actually restricting it in the way that you you hope to restrict the population in the uplands mm. I mean one, one thing that I was struck by your book was the fact that of the, I mean I think you interviewed over a thousand people and 
not a single uh, over a hundred. Over a hundred. Sorry, yes, I, no, I, no, <laughs> you better get, cut, play... that, you cut that question out. <laughs> Blimey. Well, I mean, regardless of whether it was a thousand or a hundred, there was no there was no one from the anti-hunting lobby, and that wasn't your decision. That was theirs. Why well, do you think got, that was? We got in touch with them and said and told them what we were doing. And no, they they just simply didn't reply. But I, I sort of wasn't surprised because mm. I can remember years ago, um, ringing up the League Edge School Sports. The first time I made a programme, they did speak to me. And the second time I wanted to, I rang up and I said I wanted to speak to the director. And they said, we don't talk to pro-blood sports journalists. And when I pointed out I wasn't so much pro-blood sports as anti-bad lawmaking, they, they just dismissed me. So, no, they, they do see me as pro-blood sports. It's as simple as that. They're not, they're not going to engage. And uh, none of that surprises me. Hmm. I don't know what they'd have, they would have said to us, I mean, they've done no research whatsoever, as far as I know, on the impact of the act. What they want is a total ban. And the Labour Party looks as though it might give them one if it gets into power. Mm. And that would be a ban not just on all forms of hunting. So the exemptions would go, the ones that exist at present. It would also be a ban on trail hunting. Mm. And, and that's their holy grail. So no, they've, they've got no interest in talking to people like me. Yeah. I, I noticed in your book, uh, you quote uh, the Guardian columnist, George Monbiot, mm. not. How, how much do you think he's sort of helped frame the, the, their anti-hunting debate um, and the, sort of their position they have now? Do you think he's part of that, um, making it a class but, issue? Um, Monbiot's always... I mean, I find Monbiot quite interesting, actually. Because, he, he, I mean, I think he says that as an animal welfare issue, hunting rates about 155, way below factory farming and, 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 and um, dri- driven game shooting, game bird shooting. Um, it's for him. It's purely class, and uh, like many people who've been to public school, of course, you'd like to see them abolished as well. Um, so I think he said it's the second worst thing. But he has this—he has this caricature of hunting, which which is why I wrote about it in some ways. Um, that he just thinks that people who go hunting are sort of aspiring to become like Lord and Lady Mark on a horse with a red coat, um, and it just suggests to me he hasn't been out in the field very much. I mean, I've been out to hunts where the, 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 where the master of the hunt has love and hate tattooed on his knuckles. Um, you know, and I've, I've been out with other hunts where people are obviously extremely well healed. It's, it's a very varied, it's a very, very rich, diverse, varied world. And I think Monbiot doesn't seem to realise that. Mm. I guess moving back to solutions, if it was up to you, what would be the solution? Question one and question two, do you think there is a middle ground that would be accepted by, you know, the anti, anti-hunting anti lobby? Well, to answer your second question first, that no, that there is no middle ground. Mm. Um, they, they not only want to do away with... Once they're done away with hunting, their next target will be shooting, mm. which, to be quite frank, is much more problematic from an animal welfare point of view. If you, get, if you go down to Exmoor and talk to people in Exmoor about the shooting of high birds, that's why people go down there. They pay £16,000 a day for eight guns. And part of the thrill is these very high birds. Well, of course, don't tell me they're not being wounded, some of them. They may be picked up later. Um, so that'll be next for the antis, and then it'll be fishing. So this is just a step along the road for them. So, uh, no, there's, there is no middle ground for them, and they're not interested in that. In terms of what could be done, and, and I, I, I have to, to doff my hat to Jim Barrington, because he's spent years studying this, which I haven't. Um, as you know, I'm a dilettante and come in and out of the subject. <laughs> um, 
that Jim's idea, which I think is a very good one, was that there's the 1972 Welfare of Animals Act, Northern Ireland, which had exemptions. So it allowed, it covered domestic and wild animals. Um, it allowed for hunting to continue and angling and shooting continue. But if anybody, which could be the director of public prosecutions, or it could be the League Against Cruel Sports, or somebody who happened to see it, thought they had witnessed something which caused undue suffering, unnecessary suffering, they could test that in the court. And if it had, then the courts would have the right to stop, stop the hunt or to stop the shoot or whatever. So ideally, I think it would be tremendous if you replaced the 2004 Hunting Act with something like that. But um, convincing the next government, the Conservatives won't go near the subject because they are just too frightened to go near the subject. And anyway, there's a significant number of fairly young Tory MPs who are antipathetic to field sports. Um, and Labour, it'll be very interesting to see what happens. They, they, in their draft manifesto, they say they're going to completely ban hunting and trail hunting, which would be fabulously illiberal um, to say to a bunch of consulting adults and children and horses and dogs who are not allowed to follow an artificial trail. Um, whether they would consider something like that, I think that's a very long shot. Yeah, no, it's a it's a bit of a sobering thought that that Labour are even considering it. But we we went to your your book launch last Tuesday um, uh, in the House of Commons, and I understand lots of politicians were invited. Do you do you feel that there were enough politicians, probably on the other side of um, the debate, on the Antonine side, that are willing to engage, or, or did you find it was quite one sided? I, I actually couldn't answer. I haven't a clue. Yeah, I don't know how many came. Not very many. I think certainly in the House of Lords, I mean, the, 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 the meeting in the House of Lords was, was hosted by Baroness Malady, who's been sort of wonderful, sterling supporter of, of hunting over the years. Um, no, I, 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 I think getting MPs even interested in the subject and convincing that they need to relook at something like the Hunting Act rather than just tighten it up is going to be incredibly difficult. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's up to the hunting world now. I mean, I've said this to other people. There's nothing more Jim and I can do if, 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 with rural wrongs. It's up to the hunting world to use the thing as a sort of weapon to show that the hunting act has failed and that it needs to be replaced with something that's better for our wild animal welfare and better for rural communities too. Yeah. And I guess a not, uh, probably a nice question to sort of round, round off with. Where do you see fox hunting in 10 years' time? Where would I like to see it, or where do I see where it? Where do you see it? I'd feel pretty gloomy at the moment. I think I think there's a very strong argument that the hunting world hasn't made, that, that hunting is culturally very important. I think a civilised society is one where you don't prescribe the activities of a group of people because you dislike the people. You focus on what the activity is. And I think it's rather like, I mean, ecologists always say the healthiest ecosystems are the most diverse. I would say the same about civilizations and I think I think hunting is an important part of our culture even though I've never done it I mean it's in our DNA whether you like it or not you know our language our spiritual beliefs uh, all sorts of things have been influenced by hunting so I would be very sad if it disappeared okay. one thing that has struck me is all the people who represent the hunting world yeah. tend to be male middle age or even older my age almost predominantly middle or upper class. When I go out to the hunts, I see all these gorgeous women on horses. <laughs> well, I do, in their 30s, 
Why aren't you pushing them forward? They would make a much better argument yeah, yeah. for hunting. Not only that, not only having the women who are there in greater quantities of men, as far as I see, also having people who are not from the sort of, haven't been to Stowe or Eton. Yeah. Um, all the people I meet on the hunting field who haven't been privately educated, who've yeah. worked their way up from the age of 16 in, 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 in the sort of the hunting job world, they should be pushed forward. I mean, one of the things, I went to I went to the Peterborough Hound Show a while ago and I bumped into these people. They were waiting for a taxi and so was I. So we, we piled into the same taxi. And one of them was, uh, and this was at one of the sort of the little breaks in COVID where you could actually do things. One of the women who, they, she was from the, the Braes of Derwent, which is a hunt up in County Durham, I think. And I was asking what she did. Well, she was a, she was a night nurse in Newcastle and she hunted. And she was saying, look, there's loads of people like me. Mm. Um, and I think the more these people become conspicuous and represent the hunting world, the, the fairer the picture is of the hunting world and the more sympathetic people would be. Mm. Um, yeah, well, Hugo and I probably need to find a replacement for our podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, to take over for mass. But Charlie, I'm, not, I'm not being an inverted snob by saying that either. No, 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 I, I, I agree. I Voices probably need to step up and um, and, and and be heard with, with an election looming. But Charlie, thank you so much um, for your time um, and yeah, and giving up. And I urge everyone to, to go out and buy the book. We'll put a link on the podcast uh, where you can get it and and maybe buy a second copy for your local MP. <laughs> but wonderful. Thank you so well, much, Charlie. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure.